0: you're tuned in to the weekend variety wireless
1: good evening welcome along to the weekend variety wireless here on radio live the radio show and the podcast for a full full schedule uh you'll get in early-ish heads up during the week go to the weekend variety wireless web page the full schedule of what's on this weekend is there and easy ways that you can get in touch with this program Max Cryer to ask him a question about the English language words and things uh, and there's also the Facebook page you can do it there but the weekend variety wireless web page we do encourage you to go have a look oh there's a special reason this week or right now today July the 21st is the 49th anniversary of the moon landing this would be very very important if we had seven fingers uh, but we have ten there'll be a hullabaloo about it next year I'm sure I hope Buzz makes it Buzz Aldrin Uh, yes the 21st of July 1969 maybe the pinnacle of human achievement outside of the internet well as far as big stuff goes it's as far as anybody's gone away from the earth I caught up with Buzz Aldrin uh, the second man on the moon and this was about 2013 and I spent a little bit of effort making this lovely big laminated photograph thing on, on a nice backing of the landing site it's only relatively recently that you can actually get photographs of the moon surface where the Apollo program landed and there's Tranquility Base and you can see the little footprints and I showed it to Buzz and it was the first time he'd seen it so I was really stoked to be the person to show it to him for the first time Uh, what I wanted to do, uh, spend some effort putting this damn thing together. I said Buzz would you mind signing it because I thought I'd take this home with Buzz's signature on it and it would be great But uh, before that happened, he was taken with it. And he says, oh, my word, son, is is this for me? Uh, Yeah, it is. Why, thank you. I've I've never seen this before. That's uh, mighty kind of you, uh, young man. (laughs) Young man. Anyway, so there it went. I went home empty-handed but with a big smile on my face. You can have a look at that conversation on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Just go down and have a look at the video or the Facebook page, I don't care. Uh, Lots of astronomy this week. Big fat astronomy uh, thing with Grant Christie and we will commemorate the landing on the moon July 21st. So welcome along folks. Oh, also, uh, after 11 o'clock tonight, Lou Reed's Street Hassle. It's turning 50. Uh, we're doing albums, um, turning, sorry, turning 40. Album's from the class of 1978. Grant Smithies, who spoke with Lou Reed. Um, must have been a few years ago, because Lou's dead now. I interviewed him once, actually. It was the scariest interview of my life, because he's known to be so septic with journalists. And he was pretty
0: septic, actually, but he also had a bit of a sense of humour percolating away.
1: Yeah? What did you get out of him? Oh, I got him talking about his penis, which Mm. was excellent. Brilliant! Okay. Uh, After the commercial break, we head straight into the Science Hour. Science Report with Emily Park. Curiosity not only killed the cat,
0: it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live.
1: Returning for an expose on sciencey stuff, specialist subject, the philosophy of science and the ethic and ethics. Um, Emily Park from Auckland University. Hello. Hey. Okay. First up, how software might be better at predicting the toxicity of things than rabbits going and having stuff poured on them. Uh, it's awful, isn't it?
2: Yeah so I mean this is a straightforward science story in a way but it has some interesting ethical upshots So um, there's a new paper published last week in Toxicological Sciences, the journal um, Reporting on some new machine learning software that has been trained on huge amounts of data about chemical toxicity And can actually do just as well as or outperform animal studies
1: But they'd have to use animals to study that wouldn't they?
2: Well, that's actually an interesting thing. The data set that they looked at was this massive collection of um, data from past studies, many of which were animal studies. Oh, I so, see. Um,
1: and they run it like, if we had this, would we get an accurate result?
2: Sort of. I guess that's how the logic of the results end up looking. But basically what it does is say, here's this huge amount of data about chemical toxicity. Um, There's a thing called the read-across method that's typically been done by actual human experts, where you say, here's a new chemical. It's very similar to previous chemicals let's look at the toxicity of those chemicals and guess how toxic it's going to be based on similarity. So basically what they've done is train a computer to do that thing that people used to do. Okay. So the software just scans this huge database of past results about toxicity and says how similar is this chemical to those previous chemicals, how toxic is it going to be. So in the study, they applied it to nine different standard toxicity tests, things like um, skin irritation, eye irritation, inhalation damage, and... um, showed that it does as well and sometimes better than animal tests at predicting toxicity levels. All
1: right. But would the consumer be happy with that? Would the consumer be happy without the test on an animal?
2: Well, that's the question. Um, I mean, yeah, it's quite tricky, and I suppose in some ways it would depend on the issue in question. I mean, for me, if you told me, you know, here's something that might irritate your skin... But we've looked at it through the software algorithm. Um, are you happy to take it without animal testing? Sure, no problem. No, If it's I a want question a about rabbit. causing cancer, yeah. it might it might be different. So Right, I um, see. I think I, I would imagine consumers would have different reactions depending on the potential toxicity issues. Yeah.
1: yeah. But, it's one of those awful moral dilemmas, isn't it? When I said it's awful to um, you know, test these things on animals. I think it is awful, but what the, the uh, Obverse of that is what we don't do that. I mean, it's so much medical and scientific knowledge has been gleaned, unfortunately, um, on some suffering of animals, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's good questions to ask about when that was really necessary and when it wasn't. Um, right. I mean, a, a lot of those studies, there might be good arguments for why they were necessary. We had to, you know, give a certain number of mice cancer before we could say anything about giving it to humans, for example. Mm. But in lots of other cases, you know, um, pumping rats full of like 10,000 times as much as a human would ever ingest and seeing how painfully they die to see if humans can uh, ingest this chemical or not. Some of those sorts of studies arguably might not be as necessary. So it's a spectrum. Um, But yeah, it's it's interesting to think that someday we might be able to replace animal testing with, with this sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Okay, good luck to them. Um, now, uh, another algorithm, how to optimize caffeine dosage and when you have your caffeine dosage for maximal alertness effect. A coffee in the morning? Hold on, Oh, five, four, three, two. what's this?
2: Yeah, I, I was very excited about this uh, personally because I'm always sleep deprived and always wanting to stay awake during the day as I imagine many people are. Um, so this is another. You have a
1: you have a small human with you.
2: I have two small humans, okay. and uh, you know a job and all all those sorts of things. Yeah, so I'm always looking for research on sleep deprivation and how to cope with it. Um, so caffeine is an obvious way to cope with it. That's how I cope with it, but in a very unsystematic way. I just drink coffee until I feel terrible. So um, this this new study that was just published in May in the Journal of Sleep Research reports on a new algorithm for using caffeine to maximize alertness, Uh, in particular, when should I ingest caffeine and how much. And uh, they report that it improves alertness up to 64% with the same amount of caffeine or gives you the same alertness with 65% less caffeine. Um, So the idea is, how can I get more bang for my buck with the same amount of caffeine I'm drinking or cut back on caffeine and still be as alert?
1: Have we got the details on when and w- how much and stuff? What when? when do you yeah, do you... well,
2: so I was hoping there would be like an app you could go download. Um, yeah. So this is U.S. Army Medical Research. Oh. You, you can imagine reasons why the Army might care about this sort of question. Right, right. Um, they say it's currently being assessed with soldiers in training. It's not publicly available yet, but they're hoping to license it soon. But um, there is a web tool based on related research that I looked up uh, just before coming over here. So it's called 2B Alert. If you just Google it, uh, number two, letter B dash alert, it's a sort of, uh, you have to register for it, but you just give your email address. But it's not personalized. So it's a web tool where you um, give it the hours that you slept and the amount of caffeine you ingested, and it gives you some nice graphs predicting alertness patterns over the day. Mm. But those are based on averages from having studied a bunch of people. But there's a little thing on the landing page that says, coming soon, the ability to optimize caffeine use. So oh. I think they're heading towards making it a personalized tool. Because, yeah, I just want an app where I can say, you know, here's the five hours of sleep I got. I need to teach it to, when should I have my giant espresso?
1: Oh, okay. And you get a bu you, you really do get a lift out of see i'm I'm coming from the point of view that I'm pretty sure I must have some enzyme or something that eats up the bit that keeps you awake because it has absolutely no effect on me as far as caffeine yeah it doesn't it doesn't give me a boost i I can have three cups of coffee before I go to bed
2: huh interesting yeah. I read something recently about how caffeine works. It blocks certain neurotransmitters and they all come flooding back later and that's why you crash. So oh. maybe you're missing part of your brain.
1: Maybe I am. That would seem more likely. <laughs> and in the, in the military, if you wanted to stay up, they'd jab you with some amphetamines, wouldn't they? For goodness sake, well, this is what, life and yeah. death.
2: That's what I would think. Apparently, this study, you know, there's branches of research trying to find uh, gentler ways to stay awake. If it was good enough
1: to keep Lou Reed up in 1979, I mean, surely the military would say it's okay.
2: Apparently, they think they're better than Lou Reed.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Misguided. (laughs) Man, he was tetchy. We're looking at street hassle later on tonight after 11 o'clock. Some good stories about Lou. Okay. Uh, oh, Street Hassle, his album from 1978. The benefits uh, for kids going barefoot as opposed to wearing shoes. Well, 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 well. I can't wait to see what's in here. Emily.
2: Yeah, so so this is a recent study from Germany um, that was published in a journal called Frontiers in Pediatrics, but I thought it was interestingly relevant for New Zealanders, and so far as many kids here don't wear shoes, uh, which I've always thought was awesome, but... Um, you know, my my mother who raised me in the US thinks it's very important to wear shoes because that's sort of what's socially acceptable there. Mm. Um, so I grew up always wanting to run around barefoot and not being allowed to as much as I wanted. So apparently regular barefoot physical activity is good for you kids. You and Patty
1: Smith. Yeah. Sorry.
2: <laughs> regular barefoot physical activity is good for kids, reports this study, um in a sense. So they looked at eight hundred and ten kids who wore shoes and who went barefoot, about half and half and gave them tests balancing and jumping and um, a short run and showed that B, the barefoot group apparently did better on the balancing and jumping skills, especially in the 6 to 10 years bracket that oh. they looked at. An important thing about the study, though, um, which is very clear if you go look at the actual paper but wasn't as clear in the media reports is that the barefoot kids were in rural South Africa and the shoed kids the shod kids were in urban Germany.
1: Oh.
2: So that seems like another factor that perhaps
1: maybe would affect
2: the differences they found and they're very clear about that in the study that um you know yeah. further research is needed to show if there were confounding factors but the the statistical models they use at least seem to show that there was a significant difference even if yeah. you
1: a lot of barefoot foot kids and adults would absolutely love to have shoes you wouldn't want to run around you know, it's you get your foot cut you know after a um, in Scotland after an old firm man match at Ibrox, there's a lot of broken glass you know you just wouldn't want to ru- run around
0: there
2: it's a danger. But on the other hand, I mean, part of the point they're making is there's, you know, in, as the feet are developing, there might be things about the musculoskeletal system that benefit from being barefoot, oh, okay. better balance and finer tuning of muscles and so forth. So um, it's interesting, at least, you know, even if there are these confounding factors, it's nice to see studies focusing on the positive effects of not wearing shoes. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: It's interesting when you came to New Zealand, you thought it was a cool thing. I think it's great. I think kids should always be barefoot, except when there's broken glass around.
1: Yeah. Okay. Emily Park, thank you very much for the science report this week. Uh, After a short commercial break, we can continue on the scientific bent. We have Grant Christie with Astronomy News on, yeah, this anniversary, the 49th, there'll be, oh, all sorts happening um, on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing 1969. I hope Buzz Aldrin makes it. Um, He's looking okay. He's got a good left hook. Um, He punched out a a critic a few years ago. That was fun. Uh, I think you can see that online. Buzz Aldrin I have had the pleasure of speaking with Buzz Aldrin a couple of times and there's a little video up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage I showed him a picture of the um, Tranquility Base, the Eagle landing site, and you can see the little pathways where um, our humans ran, including one called Buzz Aldrin. It oh, was wow. the first time he'd ever seen it. He said, no, oh my word, a, that's a thing. I, wow. could, I could show him his the tracks of his footprints. And um, then he demanded that I handed it over,
2: <laughs> which I did. Nice,
1: before he punched you. Nice, no, actually nice. <laughs> He's a good guy. OK. Uh, Astronomy next with Grant Christie. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. 49 years ago, this happened.
2: Four forward. Four forward. Drift into the right a little. Contact light. OK. Engine stop.
1: APA out of defense. How did descent. Hold control both auto decent engine command override off. Engine arm off. Four thirteen is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Listen, uh Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger Twink tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, we're gonna be busy
2: for
1: a minute. Roger, Eagle, and you are safe. Yes, sir, I read Columbia, right here. Roger, we read you five by Columbia. He has landed Tranquility Base. Eagle, is at Tranquility? Over. Yeah, I heard the whole thing. Well, good show. Somehow the worst... Audio is, and the the worse the pictures are, the more important they seem. And I think the moon landing really did that. That was 49 years ago. There'll be significant celebrations because we've got 10 fingers. Um, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> next year, won't right, the
0: 50 yeah. years since oh, the moon landing? I remember it well. I remember it well. It was a really um, stunning occasion. Um, I was still at school at that day, but we were sitting around the back of the class with a radio, little transistor radio, wow. listening to it all and I can still remember thinking uh, when Armstrong was actually said he was standing on the bot the foot of the LEM, the lunar excursion module that they had arrived on. He's standing on the foot. And I was thinking, well, that's kind of, he's on the moon. Come on, give us a break. And then we had to wait while he, then he planted his footprint. And mm. somehow they managed to not walk all over it after that. Right. Oh, it didn't mark up the first one. I never thought of that. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, they're jumping up and down. There's a little ladder thing that they were getting up and down with. I mean, I don't know whether he deliberately chose a space because then it takes off again. Uh, would it um, blow it away? Well, there was a bit of, uh, you know, there's a bit of pressure going down, and but no wind,
1: so things would survive outside the proximity of the blast. Yes,
0: there's no wind, and of course, uh, the the particles will settle. So I presume his actual original footprint is probably still there, but I'm not an expert on exhaust from lens. No. Although I have met Buzz Aldrin. He's up for a trick or two. He probably stomped on the
1: top of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he, on his deathbed he'll be going. Oh, yeah, he couldn't quite spit on exactly it. Could actually, he? mine. <laughs> Good guy, Buzz Aldrin. I had the great honour. I'm, I'm full Skype mode here. I met him yeah. twice. It's a really, really, really groovy yeah, guy. Yeah, no,
0: he's, he's been a you know a great advocate for the, oh. the all that program.
1: And. That's another reason why I often claim that 1969 is the pinnacle of Western civilization. That Beatles released Abbey Road, the Concorde flew. We thought that was just the beginning of supersonic sure. travel. Went to the moon. That was just going to be the beginning of we're going to go to Mars. ooh, at the latest 1974. It's that sort of stuff yeah. was its peak in 69, wasn't you look it? At the hot craft.
0: We, well, look at the technology they had available. You know, the computers were. You know, useless compared with anything today. Your cell phone would have run rings around them.
1: Yeah, true. Okay. Um, First up, uh, uh, we've got some links on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. If you go there and it says click here for this weekend's schedule, you'll see a few things uh, regarding what we're talking about for our astronomy piece today. Um, First of all, a a rare double asteroid uh, has been revealed by NASA, I suppose it's been assumed these things must be about.
0: Yes, uh, in fact, you know the more of these little worlds that we encounter, not only the ones in our backyard like this one that flew by the Earth, but out in the asteroid belt, uh, um, it looks like about ten or twelve percent, something in that order at least, uh, are a binary. In other words, there's two objects orbiting a common centre. Mm. So, uh, um, you know, it's, it's it's an interesting conundrum in a lot of ways. It wasn't really thought. Um, likely before they really started to send spacecraft off through the asteroid belt and visiting asteroids and finding that, hey, this one here, we know we, well, they knew the asteroid was there, so they went past it and found that it's got a little companion. So, you know, that and that's actually been a relatively common feature. So, you know, given the speed that asteroids go, these things must have Kind of form together in the first place, because mm. you know if you smash into something, the pieces go flying away much faster than the gravity can hold them. So you know the, it's a it shows that they've they've either come together in an extremely slow gentle way just by a fluke, or they w- actually have been like that always. You know they've basically formed as a pair and have always been a pair. Mm. So uh, so yeah, so this uh, this, this new. Um, uh, imagery that they got from uh, using radar from Earth shows this one that was by Earth. It came within about 16 times the Earth's diameter away. Um, and that's that's pretty close, but uh, and they're about a kilometre across each, roughly. Go around each other, uh, rotate, orbit effectively each other every 24 hours, roughly mm-hmm. speaking. Um, and uh, yeah, so they won't come back for another 170 years as close to Earth, which is a a good thing but mm-hmm. you know so you know two objects like that banging together um you, you actually do see double craters on the moon where it's clearly that uh, you know in the distant past billions of years ago you know two objects whacked into each uh, oh. the moon at the same time so you know it, it's you know this isn't just a new development the solar system's always had these sort of binary mm. objects
1: okay and a new sharp view of Neptune. You may be disappointed that it looks a little bit blurry, but the the, the fascinating thing is um, the mega sharp amazing pictures were taken, that uh, were taken of Neptune were a long time ago.
0: Yes, that's right. In fact, uh, coming up for 30 years since the Voyager 2 spacecraft flew by and it just whizzed by in a matter of hours. Uh, took the sharpest images we've ever we'd had of Neptune and they haven't been nobody's done any better since and there's no spacecraft scheduled to go back there any time in you know probably decades oh. at least. So this image was taken from the VL, one of the VLT telescopes in Chile, very large telescope, they're about eight point two meters and they've got some really snazzy new um, adaptive optic system that effectively neutralizes all the motion of the atmosphere. So it's almost like having an eight meter telescope in space. So these images are sharper than what the Hubble can do. So these are the sharpest images we've had since Voyager 2 of wow. Neptune. Yeah. And although they Voyager might be a little t- underwhelming, just think of that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But um, Voyager 2 had the great advantage
0: of being right next door. Oh, yeah. It went by and it, of course, imaged, uh, you know, Triton and, the, you know, the uh, other satellites mm. of Neptune as well but you know that brief fleeting view is the only clear view really clear view we've had of Neptune and uh, hopefully modern telescopes you know when they get up to the much bigger telescopes 30 meter ones I'll use this technology on those and be able to sort of you know learn more about Neptune than we've been able to so far something astounding about Voyager and what it did
1: how it managed to catch up with all those planets there's quite a few calculations it's, it hasn't got a thruster to go i'm going over there yeah. they just had to use gravity to to yeah, pick up yeah. each planet i don't know yeah, how well they, they, could could make co-
0: they could make little course adjustments with them but they didn't have uh, like an engine that was going to be running no yeah, like today they've got these iron thrust engines that can run you know, perpetually almost uh, and uh, so you can get the speeds up like New Horizons spacecraft oh. and those sort of things. But, but it didn't miss any other than Pluto. No, no. Well, that's right. It was a fluky alignment of the planets. Ah. It was a fluky alignment. And when they were starting to look at it, they are only going to go to Jupiter. That was what they were only going to do, and then they sort of the people at JPL realized that hey, if these planets lined up, we could go to Jupiter. We could actually do Saturn, and then they realized they could do these others. And NASA, what an afternoon at the office that must have been! Well, NASA didn't want to fund it. I mean, so you know, it was actually took a lot of convincing to actually do it. It wasn't something that was sat down and planned. So, um, really? yeah, William Pickering, Bill Pickering, a Kiwi was the head yeah. of JPL at the time. And he, he, he visited here in the 1970s and gave some wonderful lectures, uh, on the, uh, on the all that planning far out and they, and they slipped it, uh, past the budget people. Mm.
1: Oh, we've got a strange image on the webpage. You can go and have a look and go, huh? What on earth is that? Um, it's an eclipse of the sun taken from earth. Just this week hang on I didn't hear this in the news
0: no well it was actually yes that's right there was a a total eclipse of the Sun by the moon uh, and it was visible all over the Southern Ocean down to Antarctica clipped a bit included Hobart a little bit of Southern Victoria Hmm. um, and the slightest bit of New Zealand basically it just clipped basically you'd have to be on Stewart Island to have any chance of seeing it. So um, so I was intrigued, you know, Dr Ian Griffin, who's the director of the Otago Museum and uh, a very keen astronomer as well, um, flew down to Stewart Island and he managed to take a picture that's has even less of the moon on it than the one on the website. Right. Uh, just in fact, you could barely see it. You, you know, if you didn't know to, what to look for, you wouldn't have seen it. It was just the tiniest clip off the moon, so it was uh, uh, off the sun by the moon, so it was actually visible as predicted. And right. uh, amazing that uh, somebody would actually go to the trouble of going and taking that picture.
1: Yeah. So,
0: uh,
1: <clears throat> okay. Well, it's an unusual one, put it that way. Um, now, naked eye planets, it, there's been a pleasing amount of go look because it's it's a relatively rare thing and to you, you get this idea of actually being in a solar disk don't yeah, you that's in a right. solar system disk. well you
0: know, last weekend i was down at uh, over at great Barrier island and sort of with a truly dark sky we had some fantastic views of uh of the of this you know view of saying all the naked eye planets in the sky at once in the evening sky and so we had mercury venus then jupiter Saturn and then Mars on the other horizon, so arcing across the sky. It was a great look, Um, and uh, but um, uh, they—it's actually a relatively rare occurrence to get all five of them in the evening sky. I mean, it's um, and also because uh, we go long periods of time where that can't even happen because. Jupiter and Saturn orbit quite slowly. At the moment, they're relatively close together in the sky. They're moving apart now. But eventually, they get to the point where Jupiter's on the other side of the solar system from Saturn. Jupiter takes about 12 years to get around the sun, so for many years, Jupiter will be in the daytime sky, uh, well, on the other side of the sky from Saturn, so they can't ever be together for quite a long time. So it only... And and Mercury and Venus, are always or they orbit the sun, and so having them together... In the evening sky, it's not common either. Mm. Um, They're often obscured by the sun, or on the other in the morning sky. So, yeah, no, it's uh, it's really cool to see the whole lot of them all there at once. This is the
1: actual version of the um, proverbial. All the planets are lined up.
0: <laughs> the, the, the are <laughs> That's a right. Nice but I you know, thought if you drew them out in three dimensions, they're yeah, not yeah. really lined up. Um, but at least they, they're all there yeah, for us. Yeah, they to couldn't see. all get in a line. There's no, that, that right. doesn't ever happen. Uh, you know, if you drew a line from the sun out, you wouldn't yeah. get them all lined up.
1: Oh, what about the other planets? Um, doesn't matter if you don't know, but uh, you're, the ones we can't see with the naked eye, Uranus, Neptune, yeah. uh, are they out there as well? Um, uh, that we just
0: can't see them? Just, or? um Pretty certain Neptune is probably as well. I'd have okay. to actually check that, Graham. I don't know. All right,
1: it's of little relevance if we can't see it with the naked eye. Okay.
0: Yeah, in theory, if if you had a really dark sky, you can see Uranus with the naked eye. It's it's not, it, it, at, when the Earth is you know at its look. closest. If you knew where to look and you had a star chart, you could pick it out. And Neptune was actually uh, marked by a little star chart that was made by Galileo.
1: And he did know. He drew a, b- a
0: group of stars, and unbeknownst to him, one of them was actually the planet Neptune.
1: Good heavens.
0: <laughs> and so, had he gone back and drawn the stars again, he, sort of, a few years later, he would have noticed that one had moved slightly. Whether it had twigged in his brain, I don't know. Quite P- possibly, though, given the other things he did. He was a very, very clever man. Oh. Uh-huh. Yep. So, all that right. was the one that got away.
1: Oh, and there's one other thing when you have a look at all those planets in the evening sky. Um, you can see another one too. You Just look down at your shoes. That's right. And you go, ah, <laughs> we're here and we're on the same plane, pretty much. As, That's right. As well, and if you, you get an idea of the,
0: the, the place. Sure. You, know, you can actually, when you see them there, Mercury's going to be the first one to disappear because oh. it'll start moving back near the Sun. Mercury doesn't hang around for long. So, uh, but you know, while they're still visible, get out there and you can actually see the line. That that line across the sky, astronomers call the ecliptic. Mm. And it's effectively the projection of the Earth's orbit onto the sky. So that's uh, why they all sort of form in a line, or very close to a line. Some of them are a little above the ecliptic.
1: Jupiter has four massive moons. We may as well salute Galileo again. He spotted them. That's why they're called the Galilean moons. Um, Four biggies. We know there are many, many more, but more and more are being found. Is this unusual that 12 have been found all of a sudden?
0: Yeah, well, it was kind of accidental. Uh, the telescope that found these was actually, this was happened a, a year or more ago. It, it actually was surveying that part of the sky uh, near Jupiter, but it was looking beyond that, trying to find Planet 9 or the, this hypothetical planet that might be there. So it's part okay. of a search for that incidentally, Jupiter happened to be there and their imagery picked up uh, these faint little bodies that were moving that were unknown um, small moons of Jupiter. And so uh, it turns out all these, well, also, you know, astronomers lose track of these moons because you know, they, they're pretty faint they're hard to do you need time on big telescopes it's hard to get time on big telescopes to do that sort of work and so and gradually the orbits slowly change over time so there's some they can lose track of they know they're there somewhere and they'd have to mount an expensive search to find them and can't be bothered basically but so this is um but what they've found uh, with the moons of jupiter is that they which now number officially at 79 Um, is that they form in sort of particular groups. And these groups of uh, moons uh, that all have common orbital characteristics uh, uh, are all uh, evidence of uh, bigger moons that were smashed up in the past through to collisions. So that uh, creates a lot of dust when that happens. So some of these collisions must have been happening right back in the sort of very earlier epochs of the solar system. One of the moons they've found is actually orbiting Jupiter backwards. So it's going the opposite way. Um, oh, most of a hitchhiker. the moon, yeah probably uh, it'll be a captured one in all uh, so if some object came close to jupiter and it got caught uh it would be the most likely explanation for that um so they can they have these they can identify families just as we have those families of asteroids that seem to have a common origin back in the distant past we can wind the clock backwards and say that they're all sort of had a common origin similarly with the groups of these uh, moons of jupiter
1: oh. Uh, that very tiny partial solar eclipse. Um I suppose you swap it round the other way and there's a chance of a total lunar eclipse. And this is what's happening next Saturday at dawn.
0: That's right. Well this is actually you know, we're New Zealand's not a good place to see this. Oh. Because it's actually totality is happening um when the the moon has actually gone over the horizon, oh. so we're not going to get a great view of it um it it's um in fact the it's still partial when it's on the horizons, but if you got up on a high place and looked west, uh, you might well see the eclipse moon, of course, the eclipse moon is quite a bit duller right. uh, so hard to see in any cloud on the horizon it's going to sort of make it pretty near impossible but, but if you're in Perth... Uh, Yeah, well there's other places, uh, like I think in the United States and places, South America I think is the prime spot to be. Uh Uh, It is the longest totality for the next century or more, about 109 years or something. It's going to be before there is a total eclipse visible from Earth that actually lasts longer than this one. But unfortunately we only see little bits of it. But worth having a look if you get up Mm. very early Saturday morning, um, 28th of July.
1: Now, this rare perfect alignment of Earth, Sun, and Pluto, it's not just a trivial. Huh, that's interesting. Is there something there were people really having a look at this?
0: Yeah, well, we did uh, actually because it's uh, it's an extremely rare event, won't happen again for another 171 years where the Earth. the sun or sun earth and pluto are all exactly in the line and so if you're looking from pluto back we talked about this last week uh, if you look at pluto looking back you'd see the earth and the moon silhouetted on the sun and transiting across the face of the sun and so there's a theory that uh, when that happens uh, that uh, if you measure the brightness of pluto looking from the earth away from the sun towards pluto pluto would appear brighter because the light is coming straight down our line of vision that's a sort of an effect Uh, that uh, is called the Seeliger effect Hmm. and it's never been observed for Pluto. I would have thought it would be the
1: opposite because we're a a shadow on Pluto. Yes,
0: but it's the shadows uh, that actually hide things. So basically if the light's coming a bit of an angle and the shadow falling on a sort of rough surface, like on the surface of Pluto, creates little shadows and so less light comes back to you and therefore, and the same thing happens, it's quite famous with Saturn's rings. A near opposition when the Sun, Earth, and Saturn are in a line, and you look at in a telescope, uh, you'll see that. Well, you don't even need a telescope to see it because Saturn just looks brighter because all the little uh, bits of rock and dust and so on that make up the rings. That all these shadows have gone away so there are no shadows now uh, you're seeing a light reflected from all the particles none of them are hidden by shadows right and so that so and the thing is that this last occurred in Pluto's case in 1931 that was only a year after Pluto had been discovered nobody had the equipment to measure Pluto's brightness at precisely we can do it electronically quite easily today with a fraction of one percent error Mm -hmm. Um, so we can uh, we can test that theory Um, so we've got the uh, we had a lovely clear night in Auckland that night so we uh, got quite a few hours of uh, imagery of Pluto that night Uh, and so did Jenny McCormick from her observatory at Farm Cove so hopefully we had to put all this together and uh, find out whether uh, whether Pluto, you know, was brighter during that time. And, is it on a USB disc or something? What do- yeah, well, that's where <laughs> it is at the moment. I've been away <laughs> on Barrier Island, so I haven't had a chance to look at that data yet. But it's, uh, yeah, so that'll be interesting because basically if it is, if we do find that Pluto was brighter, that tells us something about the texture of the surface of Pluto and Charon. Ah. And uh, in fact, the absurd thing is that measuring from, uh, you know, many... Th- um, oh. from a great from a great distance away that uh, Pluto is we can actually infer things about the size of grains of uh, ice and stuff on their surface by the way the light changed far out so.
1: the extra far out thing is the likelihood of this Pluto is not large it is extremely far away compared to the other um major planets yes. it's a dwarf planet of course and for it to be perfectly aligned yes. this
0: doesn't happen every Tuesday. No, no, well because Pluto's orbit's tilted up relative to all the other planets. That makes so it, it worse. It only crosses the plane of the Earth's orbit twice every orbit and it's, it takes 146 years or something, 248 years to go around one orbit. So it only happens twice in that interval of time and one of them was last week. And But
1: the Earth has to be Hap- just happened to and be in ha- line as well. Yeah,
0: and that's right, and uh, ideally night time. Well, so for us it was perfect in the southern hemisphere here. It was midnight when the perfect alignment happened and it was high overhead, uh, perfect conditions. We would have been derelict not to actually make measurements uh, that uh, can't be replicated again for another 170 years. 170. I thought
1: it would be something like 170,000 years or something. It's just so weird. Okay, Um Uh, dust storm on mars uh, is carrying on Um, it's making it look kind of a a little bit brighter uh, than usual which is kind of cool but uh, what else does it mean yeah
0: well it's uh it does obscure the view they get through a telescope Uh, a lot of features that would normally be sort of at their prime about now is uh are getting um uh, are a bit blurred out, but uh, still worth going to have a look. Uh, you won't get a better look than this for another sort of 17, 18 years at Mars, um, even with the uh, dust storm. So definitely go to your local observatory and, uh, you know, have a look at Mars. Oh. Um, and uh, it's, but, you know, they, they they can't really predict how long these things are going to last. Uh, we're at our closest or um, well, Mars is exactly opposite the Sun, Earth, and Mars are basically all in a line on the 27th. And I think on the 29th, Mars is technically slightly closer that night. So, okay. anytime near the end of July, early August will be great. And it'll be good through the end of August. So, hopefully, the dust will clear and you'll still get an opportunity. So, pick a fine night and go to your local ha, observatory. Ha, did, ha,
1: good one. Great pun. Did I? We're going to get an opportunity. Oh, okay. That's the rover, and who knows? Could this mean the end of it? Well, because it's it's
0: been there for years. Well, I I haven't heard that it's been. Yeah. Well, it's it's hunkered down. It's in hibernation mode because of the dust storm. Because it it gets its power from solar panels, and they they've got dust on them, and the dust is also obscuring the uh, the sunlight. So at the moment it's in sort of gone to sleep. Uh, Hopefully it'll wake up again when the dust clears and it'll battery charges up. It'll send a signal back to Earth and say. I'm here that it can't shake the dust off but yeah but sometimes winds can clean them the, 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 the they have had cases I think with these the, those small rovers that rely on their solar panels that after a um, you know a storm has gone over that's actually blown a lot of the dust off so
1: do you reckon in the future they might put windscreen wipers on them or something or a...
0: well yeah I mean they, they you know relying on solar power is probably it, it oh, yeah. limits what they can do yeah well all the bigger things they're sending now have sort of like a sort of nuclear Energy source that allows them to uh, nice. be independent of uh, the solar radiation.
1: All right. Um, finally, uh, can, do we address this? This is, this is mega astronomy of the physics variety. Um, we've got a couple of minutes, or, oh, look, knock yourself out, who cares? We've got um, the final data from the Planck mission, and it's about the standard cosmological model.
0: Yes, so uh, the Planck satellite was uh, one of a, a series of satellites that was measuring the, the light residual light left over from the Big Bang. And it was basically released... The, you know, the, we know about three hundred and eighty thousand years after the Big Bang. So we're talking about time before there was any planets, stars, anything else. Long before that, this is this the light that Planck measures is the oldest light in the cosmos. And so it comes up with a uh, a measurement of the all the history fr- from anal- analysis of the light that it's measured. It uh, can come up with a history of the universe over that interval of time. And it's uh, come up with a um, and, and basically, they analysis of the data is an enormously time consuming co- time. I mean, it took took four years of to collect the data from the satellite in the first place, and then there's just been uh, teams of scientists working on the outcome of that. And there, so they've just released what they consider their sort of final data set and made it it's available to the public. Um, and uh, it basically what what it does is confirms the standard what's called the standard model of the universe which is uh, relies on a, a big bang that occurred uh creating basically all the matter and everything else uh, and uh, the it shows us that the it has to be dark energy uh, which is pushing the universe apart we don't know what it is the physics uh, you know people haven't figured that out um and dark matter it measures all the quantities of these things in average in the universe and inflation and, and inflation, which is driven by well, yes, that's right. It, it, this, yeah, that's right. They're, so the, right in the fearless blink of an eye of the universe, long before the Planck light, the, the universe went through an inflationary stage, and it also that all fits together. That, that what they're saying is that their data matches that model extremely well. Uh, they can predict it. Uh, so uh, that's a, a big, um, a big step forward. Mm. Um, but the, there's a little. Uh, there's a little. Caveat here is that you can also measure similar things—the rate of expansion of the universe—from looking at uh, pulsating stars called feed variables, and you can see these in relatively neighbouring galaxies, nowhere near as far away as what Planck's looking at. Uh, it's looking nearby, and there's a big, there's still now a big discrepancy. Uh, in fact, the probability that's just by chance is only one part in five thousand now. So the It's a huge puzzle as to understanding how those two mesh together. It suggests to some scientists it's suggesting there's uh, some unknown physics that's actually causing that, which makes physicists very excited. Mm. But we can talk about that in detail another week. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Graham.
1: Well, hats off to NASA, the Apollo people, 50 years ago. And, of course, NASA went on to make... More mained trips to the moon. A new pinnacle in man's achievement as America became the very first nation to put a sheepdog trial on the moon. We're now in the approach phase, everything looking good. 2,000 feet, 2,000 feet, into the egg, 47 degrees. Roger. Down two and a half. Just a reminder the video of me and buzz aldrin having a chat from 2013 Uh, we managed to find it it was um stuck behind the coffee machine in the old office we managed to find it and resurrect it thank you very much duncan wilson and the web people because i'd lost it um so yeah go have a look new zealand international film festivals underway where do you have a look i hear you say weekend variety wireless webpage there you go or the facebook page i don't care Right, Uh, the New Zealand International Film Festival is on. Keep your ears peeled for tickets, they'll be doubles. I did a little Q&A thing today with the director of Dog's Best Friend. If you're a dog lover, uh, you'll love this. It's on Monday night and Wednesday afternoon as well. Uh, You can go have a look at the schedule, you'll know how to do that. But one thing that happened during the movie, one of the dog rescuers, the people that take care of the dogs, Uh, Can you imagine um, a harder beginning in life, being scraped off the floor from this situation? One of the values of science. Oh, no, not that one, who won?
0: I was born a heroin addict. My mum was a junkie. She sold me to pay off a drug debt. They found me in a dumpster
1: when
0: I was six months old. My dad escaped prison.
1: He was in jail for murder. Yeah, Yeah, it's a pretty, that's a tough bit, but it's a really heartening movie, Dog's Best Friend, there you go. Uh, we've got lots of stuff from the New Zealand International Festival, Film Festival coming up tomorrow night. I uh, kind of gave it away a little bit. Uh, Paul Callahan, a marvellous New Zealander, came up with the idea of Pest Free 2050. He died complications from bowel cancer, way, way, way too early. Should be on our money.
0: One of the values of science is that knowledge is never to be feared. There's an inherent, if you like, faith in science that knowledge per se is never to be feared. And I I feel if. if For me, approaching my disease, I've looked at it that way. I've wanted to learn as much about it as possible, what's happening inside me. And to be interested in it is to overcome the fear. I just find that works for me. I'm not saying it would for everybody. But it is part of the way that a scientist tends to look at the world. Nature is violent and cruel. And, you know, lives can be cut short very, very quickly. And that's the pattern of things. So to have life at all, to have life every day, is uh, something to be, uh, you know, enjoyed and treasured.
1: Yeah, well, we speak with uh, the director of Paul Callaghan, Dancing with Adams, tomorrow night, 10.30, the life and legacy of Pretty Amazing Bird. Okay, new sport and weather coming up next.